Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week I'm doing one that I've wanted to do for ages. I think we've I've generally wanted to do this since we started, Sam, being honest. Um, but I just wanted to do it right. So it's good, it's ready to go. It's going to be a kind of split into two parts. It'll be in one episode, but I'm going to do the first part on the kind of crime. The second part is going to be conspiracies, which is my favourite. So this week I'm telling you about the murder of Jill Dando. Samantha, please tell me you know the name Jill Dando, yeah? I do, I do. <laughs> For a moment there, I was like, who the, what? And, but I'm, nope, it's all came back, I know who it is. To be fair, it was 1999. Like, it it was a few years back, um, which obviously that, that that's off over 20, what was that? 20 years ago? Over 20 years ago now? 25 years coming up, basically? Um, 23. So, okay, thank four. you. <laughs> so obviously Jill Dando, just to spoiler if no one knows who she is, she was a cele- like a British celebrity at that time. But for us, like I'd have been three, four ish when this all happened. Santa, you'd have been a year behind. So like it might be depending on the age of the listeners, you might not be hundred percent sure who she is. So that's why I'm gonna kinda of spend so much time talking about who Jill was, then the crime and then kind of the kind of conspiracies in the trial, etc. So, who was she? So, Jill Wendy Dando was born on the 9th of November in 1961 in Western Supermare. So, I had no idea where Western Supermare was, um, but it's also known simply as Weston, and it's a kind of seaside town in the North Somerset area. Um, it's kind of about 20 miles southwest of Bristol, um, and it's got a population a couple of years ago, was 82,000. It kind of, to me, looks like a bit like a kind of Brighton... Blackpool vibes. I'm sorry if that's not what it's like, but that's what it looks like when I like googled pictures of it. Her parents were Jack Dando and Winfred Mary Jean Hockey. Um, her mum actually died of leukemia when she was 57, so Jill was 25, so she had to go through all that. She only had one sibling, which is her brother Nigel, and he worked as a journalist for BBC Radio Bristol before he retired in 2017. Um, at school, Jill was popular. She had a really good childhood. She did actually have a hole in her heart when she was younger, um, but she had the surgery and that was all fine. She was head girl at her school and she then went on to study journalism at the Cardiff Metropolitan University. She was also a member of the Western Supermare Amateur Dramatic Society in Exeter's Little Theatre Company um, and she appeared in their plays, etc. She also volunteered at Sunshine Hospital Radio in Western Supermare in the late 1970s. Now, her first job was actually a trainee reporter for her local kind of weekly newspaper, the Western the Western Mercury. Um, but her dad and her brother both worked there, so it was probably one of those of you just kind of get right into there. Now, she was a print journalist there for about five years, and then she started to work for the BBC, becoming a newsreader for BBC Radio Devon in 1985. So the BBC is obviously British Broadcasting Company. I think that's not it is. Um, but that's like a huge... Correct. Thank you. That's obviously the main kind of TV channel in Britain, obviously. Um, I know we, we're still wild to say that we've got listeners that don't live in Britain, but that's what it is. You've probably all heard of the BBC. Um, so that same year, she actually moved to BBC Southwest and she presented the regional news Spotlight Southwest. 
in early 1988, she moved from regional and um, regional television, sorry, to national television in London, and presented the BBC Television News, specifically the short one-hour bulletins that aired on BBC One, BBC Two, um, from the mid 80s to the late 90s. I, I obviously don't really remember them, but I remember they would kind of just be constant, like every hour there would be like a news bulletin of like any updates in the hour. Um, so I know that that's obviously something that she did. From 1989 to 1996, she dated BBC executive Bob Wheaton, but obviously that relationship didn't last. She presented loads on BBC towards the end. She presented Breakfast Time, Breakfast News, BBC One O'Clock News, The Six O'Clock News. She um, presented a travel programme called Holiday and occasionally Samantha, your fave, Songs of Praise. Um, Samantha generally does like Songs of Praise. That's not me taking the piss. I've been on Songs of Praise, guys. I don't know if that's a good thing to be. I have. <laughs> um, in 1995, she became one of the main presenters of Crime Watch, which is obviously quite ironic in this story. I've spoken about Crime Watch a lot before. That's your favourite. That is my favourite BBC programme. Crime Watch. Songs of praise. Crime Watch was obviously on every month and kind of gave updates on British crimes, and Jill presented it. Um, which was great. I loved it. I think Crime Watch should come back, and I still say that every time we mention Crime Watch. Um, in 1994, she moved to Fulham and moved to Gowan Avenue. Now, Gowan Avenue was quite an expensive middle-class area, and that's why she wanted it. Um, there was loads of houses, but she went for one with quite a big hedge, so it's quite secluded, and she was kind of out of the way a little bit from everybody, but still living close enough to work, etc. In December 1997, she met gynaecologist Alan Farthing um, on a blind de- date set up by a mutual friend. Now, he had been separate from his wife at the time they met, but then actually a couple of months later, his divorce was finalised and they got engaged on the 31st of January 1999. Um, their wedding was going to take place on 25th of September 1999. So, I mean, they've obviously got the money to just zoom through a wedding. There's people that save for years. Also... One of the fun facts of the episode, Samantha, that you'll like, I think, the um, Alan Farthing was the Queen's gynaecologist. Wow, what a career! He was, Imagine he was also <laughs> That'd be brilliant. Uh, yeah, he was the Queen's well, we'd be brilliant, but you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> As in, you'd get to meet the Queen. <laughs> He was also Not her personal physician as well, but yeah, fair enough. If you want to be the gynecologist for the Queen Crack on. Um, so we're going to zoom forward a wee bit to April 1999. Um, so this is when Jill was unfortunately murdered. Um, and I'm going to give you a kind of pre-murder setting, the kind of scene on what was happening around this time. Because I know we've just spoke about her career, but like she was genuinely like BBC One's like golden girl. She was like the person on the BBC. I don't know if we have a person like that anymore, like generally trying to think, but she was like the face of BBC. Like at that time, like on the 25th of April that month, she'd um, presented the first ever episode of Antiques Inspectors. She was due to present at six o'clock news on April 26th. She was actually the cover of that week's Radio Times magazine. So from 24th to 30th April, her face was the cover. She was actually also meant to be hosting the British Academy TV Awards, TV Awards, sorry, in, of 1999 alongside Michael Parkinson, who died this week. Very sad. Um, But yeah, she was meant to be presenting that with him. So, you know, at the time, she was among those, the highest profile of BBC One's on-screen staff um, and actually was the 1997 BBC Personality of the Year. So just, I know that's a lot more information than I normally kind of 
give about somebody, but I just wanted to kind of for people that weren't aware or people that even were aware how famous she was and kind of what was happening there. Now, on the morning of the 26th of April, 1999, she was 37 at this point and she'd woke up in Alan's home in Chiswick. So she'd been staying there, not at hers, and she was actually putting her house up for sale to obviously move in together. Now, she left the house early that day and had a busy day. She had a fashion shoot, she had a wedding dress fitting and she needed to get some kind of shopping. So she went for petrol, she went to Kingsmore Shopping Centre um, to get an ink cartridge um, for her fax machine, which I think, reminder, were in the 90s. Good times. Um, <laughs> and then she went to a fishmonger. She returned home alone by car to her house. And as I said, she was going to check on staff, see if there was any mail, make sure the house was okay. And she was deliberately going to fill up the paper and ink in her fax machine. Because obviously she'd be still getting faxes to the house. Jill parks her car and walks into her drive. And within a matter of minutes, Jill is shot dead on her doorstep at home. Now, she lay there undiscovered for 14 minutes until a neighbour, Helen Doble, called the police at 11.47. Jill actually still had her keys in her hand and good on Helen, she kind of was able to see that Jill was unsavable, so actually didn't contaminate the crime scene because it'd be very easy to just like grab her. Helen wasn't best friends with Jill, they knew each other as neighbours and Helen had actually gone to the shop to do some photocopying, came back, saw Jill's car, knew that Jill hadn't been staying there much so popped in to say hello and found her. Um, she obviously got such a shock and had thought she had been stabbed. So she calls the police as she's aware she's the first to witness this. Now, when she calls the police, there's kind of the bit that you hear the most of. She says, quote, confidentially, I think it's Jill Dando, which some people were like, well, what's the point in telling? I'm like, well, actually, I think there's a huge point in telling. Not that they'll get special treatment, but maybe so the police and the ambulance service don't get a shock. If you're coming to like a shooting the next minute, you're like, oh, fuck, that's... Jill Dando, this massive celebrity, and maybe also for a bit of kind of privacy as well, because the minute the press and stuff hear this, you can imagine it's going to be swarmed. Now, what's obviously unfortunate is we don't ever know what happened to Jill on her doorstep. However, I've got a quote from Bob Woffedon for The Guardian in 2002, who has like a kind of, I don't know if it's just a kind of rough idea of what happened, but he's wrote, quote, as Dando was about to put her keys in the lock to open the front door of her home in Fulham, she was grabbed from behind. With his right arm, the assailant held her and forced her to the ground so that her face was almost touching the tiled step of the porch. Then, with his left hand, he fired a single shot at her left temple, killing her instantly. The bullet entered her head just above her ear, parallel to the ground, and came out the right side of her head. So Jill was taken to Charing Cross Hospital and was pronounced dead on arrival. Now, her family and friends are obviously all told the devastating news, but unfortunately, it's actually her co-workers at BBC that had to announce her news to the public on the uh, announce her death. Sorry, to the public on the lunch news. A forensic study indicated that Jill had been shot by a bullet from a nine millimeter short caliber semi-automatic pistol, and the gun had definitely pressed against her head at the moment of the shot. Now, this was apparently for many reasons with different like I think with different hitmen or whatever they know how to kind of do it so if you put the gun closer to somebody's head there's obviously less splatter of blood but also it can make less noise but it also came out that the cartridge had appeared to have been modified like modified possibly to reduce its charge as well so this is the thing she has been shot dead in the street in broad daylight like this was a normal day and at like 11 odd in the morning. So the gun can't make a horrific noise. 
So the police obviously start their investigation and nobody heard anything. But her next door neighbour, Richard Hughes, said that he heard her pull up outside in her blue BMW, heard her go to her door, scream, and then heard the gate shut. He said he then saw a man casually walking away. But sorry, Richard, he heard a scream and he never went to look. Now, some people are like, actually, it could be that she's got a fright. It could be that it's been someone an autograph. It could be somebody that's a friend has come to say hello. But maybe I'm just the worst neighbour in the world. But if I heard my neighbour scream, I think I'd be right at the window. I'd be right out there. Yeah. Having Person a look. Situation. Yeah. yeah. Just like the fact he's so casual, like I thought it was just a kind of like, it was more, he described it, which is obviously a kind of part of the conspiracy theory, as a scream as if like I was to appear behind you and you'd be like, oh, you fuck, okay. That's how he described it. So that then plants the seed of, did she know the person that killed her? Now, the main kind of topic of conversation was this planned or opportunistic because Jill didn't live there. She was just going for something. So did they know she was planning on going or was this simply someone that just saw her and just went for it? Now, police confirmed after checking CCTV, seeing her in the shop, seeing her driving, Jill was not followed that day. Nobody followed her. So did they know she was planning on going back or was it one of those that they just waited around to see if she would go back? Or again, was it just opportunistic? Now, New Scotland Yard began one of the country's longest running and costly investigations in the UK's criminal history, and it was known as Operation Oxborough. Now, this had been the cr- biggest criminal investigation case in UK history since what, Samantha and listeners, you can have a think. What case before this was the biggest criminal investigation case in UK history? It wasn't the Moors murderers, was it? No. No. Right, I'm out. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> it was the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, he was my second, or she was my second. Get- no, I'm kidding. She, he, it was a he. <laughs> Ignore me. Has the Yorkshire Ripper not been found? No, he has. That's why I right. said he, but then it was, I was like, she, and then it was like Jack the Ripper? No. Anyway. Moving on. Yeah, let's move on. So obviously, this starts a massive, like, who done it? what is the motive like jill had no enemies jill was disliked by nobody so like what has happened here um so within within sorry six months the murder investigation team had actually spoken to more than 2500 people and taken more than a thousand statements and over 2000 people were named by the public to be jill dando's murderer so this is obviously great that the public get involved and phone in tips Honestly, like, do it if you think you know something to do with a crime. 100% do it. But it shows the amount of work police have to do because they have to investigate every single one. And some of them are 100% not going to be right. But they have to look into them. Now, I also want to give some context, just a side note about the police at that time, because the police were under a lot of scrutiny at that time um, by the media, by the public, as this was around the time of the London Nail Bomber. So Brick Lane and Brixton and all that had been hit, um, and this was David Copeland. He'd also gone on, while this investigation was going on too, but, um, do the bomb in the um, Soho gay scene before he was caught. So this was also happening at the time, and I don't think we've never covered the London Nail Bomber, we could do, but it took a while to find him, the London Nail Bomber. So obviously the police already got all this pressure, and then this happens. Now, as much as we go back to our friend that didn't tamper the crime scene, the crime scene was tampered a lot by everybody else on the scene because people were trying to help. People like the police were first arrived in the ambulance. So the crime scene was completely tampered. And just to say the gun was never found. They have never found to this day the murder weapon. 
Now, on the night of her death, um, her colleague Nick Ross, who was also her co-presenter of Crime Watch, said on Newsnight that retaliation, retaliation. Yeah, but retaliatory. As in, like you're going to retaliate. Yeah, but retaliatory attacks. Yes, that sounds Thank good you. to me. Cheers. <laughs> By criminals against the police, lawyers, judges, etc., were almost unknown in the UK. So he was kind of saying that, like, this isn't because she presents Crime Watch, which is a conspiracy I'm going to go on to, because I think that needs to be all right. But he was like, it's not just somebody that she's pissed off on Crime Watch that's then gone and killed her. But Crime Watch actually covered her case, which must be unreal to have to do something like that but a reconstruction was done on crime watch as they appealed for her killer now police actually look into the stalker theory and although it wasn't proven that a stalker done like the murder it showed the kind of shite that jill had to put up with basically so it came to light that two lloyd's bank employees were illegally accessing her accounts just to be nosy just running credit checks just being fucking weirdos um a man had tried to actually take over her phone accounts to see who she'd been calling and someone had actually tried to hack into all of her utility accounts as well. So it shows the kind of pish that celebrities have to deal with. Now, Jill's funeral took place on the 21st of May 1999 at Clarence Park Baptist Church in Western Supermare. Now, she was buried next to her mum in the town's Ebden Road Cemetery, so that's where she is. Now, the case goes kind of cold a wee bit, and then the one-year anniversary approaches, the police start reinvestigating some of their old things. If I'm honest, I think it seems that they're a bit panicky, as someone, a celebrity has been shot on their doorstep, and they don't know who done it. So I can imagine they're a bit like, mm, and the public weren't too chuffed about this. Now, they went back to early Leeds, and a man who lived about half a mile away was brought to their attention, but they didn't look into it. So this was around the time of the murder. This man was brought to their attention, and they just never followed it through. So... A taxi company called in saying a man was lingering around, acting strange, and they actually felt that he was at this taxi company to to create an alibi for himself because he didn't order a taxi, obviously. Now, this man is Barry George, well, Barry Michael George, born on 15th of April 1960. Now, I'm going to tell you a bit more about him first, um, kind of similar to how I go on about Jill. I'm going to tell you just some more so we can kind of just understand because he's going to be a big part of this story. Now, Barry George is the youngest of three children, and at 14, he attended the publicly funded Heathermouth Boarding School, um, which was for children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. Now, he left school without any qualifications, and he basically, his only employment ever was as a messenger for BBC. Um, he was on a fixed term contract for six months, but the job only lasted for five months. He had loads of different pseudonyms. So at school, he used to use the name for Paul Gad, which is the real singer of who, Samantha? Uh, the real name of what singer, Samantha? An audience? I have no idea. I'm sorry. Okay. Gary Glitter. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Boo. Um, in 1980, he failed to join the police, um, but he did actually just pose as a policeman. If you can't. Make it, fake it. Um, and he obtained a fake warrant card. Um, for this, he was obviously arrested and prosecuted. In 1980, he appeared in court in his clad, like, glam rock clothing and untruthfully stated his name to be Paul Gadd. She was obviously not Paul Gadd. He's not Gary Glitter. That's not his real name. But he kept using this name. Bear in mind, though, back then, Gary Glitter wasn't a ped. So it's probably yeah, pedophile, sorry. <laughs> so it's probably okay to kind of be like, yeah, I want to be Gary Glitter. Now that would be a issue in itself. So he was, decision. yeah, he was convicted and fined twenty five pound. 
Um, in the early 1980s, he appeared in the local newspaper, claiming to be the winner of a British karate competition. This was a fraud. In 1980, he joined the Territorial Army. So this is the kind of volunteer army, but was actually discharged the following year. He then adopted the persona of an SAS member, Tom Palmer, of one of the soldiers, basically, who ended in the 1980 Iranian ambassador siege. That's who he then pretends to be. He was then charged of two counts of indecent assault in June 1981 and was acquitted of indecent assault against one woman and convicted of indecent assault against the other, for which he received a three-month sentence suspended for two years. Using another name, Steve Majors, he claimed to be a stuntman and convinced a stadium to stage a show in which he would jump over a four double-decker buses on roller skates. Um, he injured himself and did not complete the stunt. In March 1983, he was convicted at the Old Bailey under another name, Steve Majors, um, for the February 1982 attempted rape of a woman in action, for acting, sorry, for which he served 18 months of a 33-month sentence. On the 10th of January 1983, it was revealed that his arrest, um, that he had been found in the grounds of Kensington Palace um, at the time that Prince Charles and Princess Diana were over visiting. He had been discovered hiding in the grounds wearing a balaclava and carrying a poem he'd written to Prince Charles. Not Diana, Prince Charles. <laughs> On the 2nd of May 1989, at Fulham Register's office, he married 35-year-old Japanese student. I think her name was Itsuko Toyodi. Um, and she described it as a marriage of convenience, but nonetheless violent and terrifying. After four months, she reported to police that he had assaulted her. And on the 29th of October 1989, he was arrested and charged, but the case was dropped and did not go to court. The marriage ended in April 1990. In 1990, um, again, and again, sorry, in January 1992, he was arrested and charged with indecent assault, but neither went to court. So that is who he is. Um, so the police obviously decide to look into him. Now, I'm going to be honest, there is not much evidence against George, if I'm completely honest with you, apart from the fact he was a bit obsessed with Jill Dando. Um, now, he had obviously gone to the BBC quite a lot and he would go to the BBC every week and pick up their like staff magazine that was for the staff. Now, it could be a bit weird, but he had that. So police then went to his house and he did have loads of clippings from BBC newspapers. He had six copies of the memorial for Jill Dando paper. He just, to be honest with you, he was just a bit weird, which at that time gave the police enough to arrest him and charge him with this. Now, there is, I'm going to go on to what the evidence was against him in a bit, because that's all kind of under scrutiny, but I'm just going to kind of skip that for now until he was arrested and charged with the murder of Jill Dando. Now, before his trial, George was actually diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Um, prosecution psychologist studying George concluded that he had several different personality disorders. He was antisocial, he was hysteronic, he was a narcissist and he was possibly paranoid. Um, he also had factitious disorders. Um, he had attention deficit hyperacti hyperactivity disorder, which is ADHD. And he was also said to have epilepsy and an IQ of 75. However, prior, a prior assessment to this believed him to be of average intelligence, but this is saying his IQ was 75. Now, in early January 2001, nearly two years after the crime, the murder trial begins at the Old Bailey in London. It was led by Mr Judge Gage, Justice Gage, sorry, with Orlando Powell QC as a prosecutor and Michael Mansfield QC as a defence attorney. Now, after four days, the proceedings were actually adjourned by Gage. We don't know why. So the trial resumed the last week of April 2001, only to be delayed further until the 4th of May 2001, when it was finally underway before a jury of five men and seven women. Now, this was obviously a very highly publicised trial, which lasted five weeks. 
Now, prosecutors' main evidence was that there was gunpowder residue found in George's clothing that linked him to the shooting. So that's what it was. It was found in the pockets of one of George's jackets. They managed to find gunpowder residue. Now, the defence team dismissed this evidence as unreliable, particularly as it was smaller than half of a thousandth of an inch in size. Right? So this is tiny. This is absolutely tiny. And what the defence were saying is you could easily, like, bump into somebody on the tube and this could go onto your coat. Now, gunpowder residue is usually not permitted as conclusive evidence as it's been found to be consistently unreliable due to cross-contamination. Now, Sally Manson, who was an acquaintance of George and a witness at the trial, stated that in a conversation she had with George about Jill's murder, he had remarked to her that he had been there. So he had gone and seen the murder um, and kind of like saw her lying there. Um, Now, George had always claimed to police he was not present, so that proved that he lied. They also failed to produce a murder weapon, so they had actual no witnesses to the crime. They had no weapon. Um, They have nothing linking him to being there. They just have this bit of gun residue. Now, the jury deliberate for more than 30 hours over five days before returning with a verdict of a majority of 10 to 1. And on Monday, the 2nd of July, 2001, with the only evidence being the gunpowder, he was found guilty of the murder of Jill Dando. That is crazy. Mentally. Mental. Yeah. Now, her fiancé was there, and so was her co-host, Nick Ross, but they stood right at the back of the courtroom. And I'd be interested to know what they felt about it, if I'm honest, because... There, it just doesn't seem to be much. Now, George's sister, Michelle, was present and gave an interview outside the court, basically saying that she believed the case had been built entirely on circumstantial evidence and that justice had not been served, which I do actually agree with her. I think they've just shat it and been like, it's the same with Raoul Moat. Like, because Raoul Moat, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to Raoul Moat episode. They, those two guys, I'm sorry, they got a huge sentence, which made no sense, but it's because somebody had to. And I think this is exactly what's happened here is the public are kind of crying out for something. So this is what they've done. Now, in 2002, Barry George, of course, appealed his conviction with his legal team, disputing his identification and um, was not, uh, obviously, Daniel's killer. And the reliability of forensic evidence was used in the trial. However, the Court of Appeal dismissed this. In March 2006, his lawyer sought an appeal on fresh evidence based on the medical examinations examination, sorry, suggesting that he was not capable of committing the crime because of his mental disabilities. The defence actually brought in a neuropsychiatrist, Michael Copelman, I think his name is, to dispute the prosecution's claim that George showed signs of, like, paranoia and narcissism and that he had a personality disorder. Now, Copelman testified that, quote, he described to me that he could be aware of what's going on around him, but he just can't respond, and concluded that George was not calculating enough to have committed the crime. Now, further in that year, in September, following investigations by George's campaigners, and there was actually a BBC Panorama documentary about the conviction um, conducted by miscarriage of justice victim, um, which Raphael Rowe, which I'll take it, we all know who that is. The first broadcast in the UK was on the 5th of September 2006, and it included an interview with him and the trial and the jury and everything. And fresh evidence was submitted to the Criminal Case Review Commission by the programme makers and by Barry George's solicitor. So just to say, like... This is the BBC, who Jill worked for, have put out a panorama about the miscarriage of justice of George. So I think that's saying something. Just me. Now, obviously, the kind of 
evidence was all looked at, specifically the analysis of the gunshot residue, witness evidence, psychiatrist reports, etc. And on the 20th of June 2007, the Criminal Cases Review Commission announced it would refer George's case to the Court of Appeal. On the 22nd of August 2007, George was refused bail, but it was obviously going to the Court of Appeal. So that's fine. Doesn't need to go. This began on the 5th of November 2007, and one of the defence's team main grounds of appeal was that the single particle of gunshot residue in the coat pocket was not evidence. This was the only thing that conclusively linked him to the crime scene. However, it could have appeared as a result of contamination of the coat when it was placed. Like, this was taken off him from his house, placed on a mannequin, and was photographed as police evidence, and then held in, like, a police evidence room. There's going to be hundreds of particles floating about there. So... On the 7th of November 2007, so a couple of days later, the court appeal reserved judgment in the case and on the 15th of November announced that the appeal was allowed and the conviction was quashed. Now, in the summary, the reasoning of the court was that the trial, the prosecution had relied primarily on four categories of evidence, right? So this is what they relied on the first one. Are you keeping up or am I just talking absolute nonsense, Samantha? No, no, I'm, I'm okay. intrigued, I'm listening. Okay, so the first piece of evidence was one witness who had identified him as being Jill Dando's, who had been in Jill Dando Street four and a half hours before the murder, and another witness who, although they could not pick George out in an identity parade, saw a man in the street in the two hours before the murder who might have been George. So that was the first bit of evidence. The second bit was alleged lies told by George in the interview. So that was him saying that, you know, he was, so he'd said something like he'd seen Jill Dando to someone but not, but then the police interview he'd said he'd had no involvement with guns before and it came out that he had a, he was in a gun club when he was younger or something. Number three was an alleged attempt to create a false alibi and the fourth one was a single particle of firearm discharge residue, known as FDR, found about a year after the murder in George's overcoat. So that residue is staying for a year. So George appears before the Old Bailey on the 14th of December and again pleads not guilty to the murder. His retrial began on the 9th of June 2008 and initially there was a lot of cover from the press, especially of the prosecution's portrayal of the defendant being highly obsessive, lacking in social skills and a danger to women. Now, I don't think any of those statements are wrong, to be completely honest with you, but that doesn't make him a murderer and especially in this case. Now, the prosecution case differed from the first trial. So because the first trial relied so much on the scientific evidence, there is now no scientific evidence because this was ruled admissible by the judge. Now, this was all about his bad character, basically, um, and basically how, you know, he'd had X, Y and Z and all these past crimes. So this is what was looked at. Um, the defence basically went on the fact that, you know, he reminded the jury that the evidence of three women that basically this piece of evidence which wasn't really mentioned much in the first case was that three women from um, Hammersmith and Fulham Actions on Disability had actually said George had arrived at their offices at 11.50 or 12 which would have made it impossible for him to have been at Jill's house at 11.30 and then gone home in the wrong direction, changed clothes and then gone here. There's no way he could have done that in 20 minutes, half an hour. This piece of evidence was mentioned in the first case and was just totally pied off, which, again, I do not understand. If three people are saying, like, no, he was here, and they're just ignoring him. Um, so the two neighbours, who almost certainly saw the murderer, the ones that were like, yeah, we see him go off in his direction, they then both failed again to identify George in identification parade. So, again, it is 10 years, but they, like, I feel like that's an image that would stick with you. They were unable to identify him. The trial ended on the 1st of August 2081 and George was fully acquitted of Jill Dando's murder. 
Now, just to say about George, because I'm going to stop talking about him in a minute, to be honest, George has won damages from tabloid newspapers over various allegations that were published about him. Um, and two of these actually went to high court. In December 2009, um, he accepted the undisclosure amount from Rupert Murdoch's newsgroup newspapers. Um, and so we don't know how much he got, but Rupert Murdoch's newsgroup papers are like News of the World and The Sun, they're fucking trash. Um, in May 2010, the Mirror also settled with him because they were actually putting out cases that he had developed obsessions with singer Cheryl and another newsreader, Kay Burley, which were never proved. There was no evidence on these, but they just were obviously printing shit because that's what they do. Um, now, however, he did obviously appeal to get some sort of compensation from the criminal system. Um, and in April 2010, the Ministry of Justice denied the claim of 1.4 million compensation made by George. Um, and they basically said, no, it was a miscarriage of justice. Um, however, the evidence had un- um, the evidence had like put him away. So basically, they had said like, sorry, I know the evidence was now admissible, but it wasn't at the time of your sentence. So he has had no payout for spending however long in jail. They've actually never paid anything for him. So I don't know how I feel about that. I think the fact that it has been quashed, I think there should be some sort of compensation because even though he's now out and he's fine, he's not the murderer. That's your reputation. You know, you're going to be known as the person that was put away for killing Childando. Well, absolutely. And like you said, you mentioned, was it Raphael? He's made a career out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so he's clearly yeah, got absolutely. some money for it. Exactly. Um, to just sum it up there, nobody else has ever been charged with the murder of Gildando. Now, I'm just going to kind of sum up how things kind of are like to this day with Jill Dando before we go on our conspiracy theories. Theory, sorry. So Jill's co-presenter, Nick Ross, proposed the formation of an academic institute in her name and with her fiancé, Alan Farling, they raised almost one and a half million pounds. The Jill Dando Institute of Crime Science was founded at the University College in London on the 26th of April 2001 for the second anniversary of her murder and is obviously still there. A memorial garden designed and released by the BBC um, television ground force team um, in her memory using plants and colours that were special to her is located within Grove Park in Western Supermare. This was opened on the 2nd of August 2001. The BBC also set up a birthday award in Jill's memory, which enables one student each year to study broadcast journalism at the University College in Falmouth. Um, so she actually, there's a girl called Sophie Long, who was then a postgrad who grew up in Western Supermare, is actually now a presenter on the BBC News, and she was the first to gain the birthday in 2000. In 2007, Western College opened a new university campus on the site of the former Broad Oak Sixth Form Centre, where she'd gone to school. The Sixth Form building has been dedicated to her and is known as the Jill Dando Centre. So there's quite a lot of things out there for her. OK, I don't mind if people want to pause it now, if people want to go and get a toilet break, another cup of tea, because we're going to go into the conspiracy theories. Now, I, there's loads on Jill and a lot of them, some of them could be absolute shite, some of them could be wrong, but I've kind of decided to stick to the main sex-ish that I'm obviously kind of ready to go with. Samantha, you ready? She's yeah. not ready. <laughs> Sorry, I am. I just dropped my phone. I'm ready for the conspiracies. <laughs> right, so the first conspiracy topic is the stalker theory. So obviously Jill was in the limelight she had a large following and this obviously led the police to question whether a member of her fan base had been responsible for her death. I discussed this earlier with the people bloody hacking in her bank account, yada yada. 
Now, around 140 people were, quote, obsessed with the star, were identified by police, including those who had actually sent her sexually explicit fan mail. Don't do that. Just just a kind of public kind of service announcement. Don't do that. If you like a celebrity, don't send them explicit fan mail. Now, just before she died, obviously, she'd announced her engagement to her gynaecologist fiancé, Alan Farling. And this had been made public, obviously, and this was huge. But did this then mean that a crazed kind of admirer could have been pushed over the edge that she had then been engaged to somebody? Now, police pursued the Lone Stalker theory, including the statement from the neighbour, Richard Hude, that said he heard like a cry from Jill, like a scream, like someone greeting a friend. So that again goes back to the, like, did she recognise the murderer or was it a fan looking all nice and innocent and being like, oh, can you sign this? And then killing her. Now, this theory has obviously been largely discounted as none of the 140 fans nor any of her ex-boyfriends were found to have been in Fulham that day. But that's the known fans. So there's this stalker theory of did somebody who was just obsessed with her just want to kill her for some reason? But then I think if you're obsessed with a celebrity, you're probably not going to want to kill them. You'd probably want to meet them and kind of chat to them, I feel, instead of just shooting them. Um, but that's just me, Samantha. That's the stalker theory. Do you have any theories or anything you want to pitch in about that one? Um, no, but I don't think that will be the correct answer. I don't believe it is either. If you were stalking someone... That's a very light one that I just wanted to start with because they then go a bit rogue. So the next thing I'm going to look into is the case of mistaken identity. Now, court papers accuse Gerald Meary, which is 72 years old, of using the Russian mafia to try and kill Lisa Brinkworth, a BBC journalist who exposed him as a sex abuser. Right. So I've obviously just said a lot, <laughs> a lot of names that you're probably like, they've not been mentioned in ages. So he was a former French model um, and he had like um, he headed the elite model management in Paris, etc. However, there was then a rape investigation that came out that he had actually been sexually abusing people. Now, the gunman that would be assigned to t- the TV presenter um Sorry, so let's start this back. So he's maybe hired a gunman to go and kill this Lisa Brinkworth because she is starting to expose these sex abuse things. However, what they're thinking is there could have been a confusion of mistaken identity and instead of being assigned to Lisa Brinkworth, she's accident- he's accidentally assigned them to Jill Dando. Now, the fashion bosses described these allegations that he hired the killer as fanciful nonsense, which of course you're going to say that. However, people have argued that the mix-up could be the loop to like they both had the same job. They both lived in the same area of London. And Jill's fiancé was actually Lisa's doctor. So it could be that actually they've seen Jill and this guy together and thought, OK, that must be the person and blah, blah, blah. So I actually kind of get that one, to be honest with you, because if you look at pictures of Lisa Brinkworth and you look at Jill Dando, they looked quite similar. And especially if this is a guy that's hired a Russian mafia member to come over, they might have easily got the wrong person. That was a lot of information. That one's definitely, yeah, that one's definitely more um, realistic, shall we say. Yep, yep. Um, That's not the one I think it is. But I'm going to save my one till last. The next theory is a gangland killing. Now, one of the first theories again to kind of gain traction was the fact that Jill presented crime watch now as much as Nick said like oh you can't like that never really happens there's always a first for something now she had a visible role on the show and this led to countless colonels ending up basically 
jailed because of her in her appeals on Crime Watch. Now, in 2017, an ITV programme looked into this and kind of fuel was added to this conspiratorial fire, basically, when an anonymous hitman told investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas that he knew who the killer was before refusing to give the name for fear of retaliation. Now, the nature of the killing obviously sheds doubt to the hitman theory because the fact the killer left the spent cartilage at the scene, which was a visible location, there was no easy escape route and he didn't like use a silencer. So like it's not like a silencer was there, like this was still heard. Um like, you know, it doesn't give over the whole professional assassin kind of thing. I think they would do it at night, somewhere a lot more sly, not just on her doorstep. However, that is also very professional to know that you can then do that and get away with it. Um, she also, like, they've said that, that the screen, did she recognise her killer? It could be that she's recognised them, but not for a good reason. Another theory that comes back to the gang and killing is would the gangs not admit to it and be like, yeah, we killed Jill Dando, which actually, we might not know that. Like, they might have taken responsibility for it, but me and Samantha aren't going to know or the public aren't going to know if a gang has taken responsibility for it. It could just be in the gang world, do you know what I mean? Sorry, this is a lot, and the next two are also quite a lot. When I was doing my research for this, I was like, I've been down some conspiracy holes, but this is a mad one. The next theory we're going to look at is the Kosovo War. So one of the most enduring theories is that a Serbian hitman assassinated her after she fronted the BBC Kosovo crisis appeal for those fleeing the latest round of ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. Again, a lot. So in the months leading up to Jill's death, NATO forces were bombing Serbia as part of the Kosovo War. Now, three days before her murder, a British bomber hit the radio television Serbia, which killed 16 members of staff, apparently including Serbia's Jill Dando. So a man with an Eastern European accent who called BBC HQ the day after Jill's death warned BBC News Chief Executive Tony Hall was next on the list and this backed up suspicions that this was potentially a revenge killing. In 2012, um, Branka Purpa, the, basically the widow of a prominent Serbia journalist called Sobako Kurdjava, said that Jill had been targeted because she had presented an appeal urging support for Kosovanian Ab- Albanian refugees. Now, her husband had actually been shot dead outside his home 15 days before Jill's murder, leading her to believe that there was a link. So, again, a lot of information, but the fact is that this could all come back down again to war. A lot of it kind of does, but if there was a Kosovo war that she was the face of and then the equivalent of her and other news people have been bombed, it could be that they've then retaliated and done it to the face of the campaign. Samantha, this is one that I'm kind of more likely to believe. It's not my main one, but this is one. What do you think about this one? Do you think this kind of makes certain sort of sense or are you not for this? It makes more sense. I guess there's more, you know, you could be like, okay, well, this is more realistic. You know, you've got the higher ups, you've got this, you've got that, you know, they're capable of anything. So, and they can cover up anything as well. So, yeah, and war causes a lot of. It, oh, I just don't like war, but who mm-hmm. does? Um, so yeah, I'd say it's you know you're getting there for me. Yeah. Okay. This next one is another bit of a rogue one, but again, we'll finish with my belief on. So this theory is the IRA. So this kind of argues that Jill was targeted again for her crime watch job, but this time the establishment did manage to track down the kind of killer. 
so way near to serving a life sentence in prison for killing a man two months after Jill was shot, reportedly confessed to being part of what he said was an establishment cover-up. He claimed the IRA was responsible for Jill's death, but this had not been brought to justice over the murder, like they had not been brought to justice over the murder for, for fear that this might jeopardise the Northern Ireland peace process. Now, that, I'm like, okay, but why? Like, I, I can't really yeah. get much. I know, obviously, like, there was a lot, you know, the troubles in Ireland, it's right, it was right as well, mm-hmm. especially when she got murdered, but like, what did she do? You know, I know she reported on it, but so many people reported on it. And there exactly. Were way other pe- more people that they were out to get. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, last but definitely not least is the theory that I really believe. And I might get some hate for this or make it get my BBC subscription cancelled. But I believe that Jill was on the verge of exposing a paedophile ring. Now, Jill's friend in 2014 said that in the, her, Jill Dando, had claimed that she had been on the verge of exposing a VIP paedophile ring when she died. Now, this person has kept anonymous. It said that Jill had approached BBC chiefs about her concerns just months before she died and had compiled a lot of evidence about this. She said, I don't recall the names of the stars now and don't want to implicate anyone. But Jill said they were surprisingly big, na- big names. Sorry. It was also reported that Jill had received death threats after um, joining a campaign to help children spot paedophiles. And the BBC had had to increase their security at the West London studios for this. The BBC have said they have seen no evidence to substantiate claims that Jill raised concerns over high-profile paedophile rings. Bullshit. I'm sorry. I think she was. I honestly think she was on the verge of exposing it. And back then, remember, this is before Savile was exposed. This is before Rolf Harris was exposed. This is before quite a lot of the names that have came out in the last few years have then been exposed. And I think she knew. And I don't think, this doesn't have to be BBC people. I think we're talking Prince Andrew. I've said what I've said. Yeah. No, I I think, well, to be honest, that's most realistic because I know we love a conspiracy theory, but whew, paedophile rings are rife, especially with the higher ups. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to be exposed, you've got so many members of every single group that can just squish you to yep. s- silence it because they're sick bastards. Uh-huh. And I think that's exactly what's happened. I don't know who she was thinking exposing. I don't know if it was royals. I don't know if it was celebrities. I don't know if it was presenters. But the fact that this friend just came forward and said that Jill was in the process of exposing it. And then the BBC have been like, nah, we didn't know anything about that. What do you mean? Yeah. No, it was probably because half of them were in it. But I mean, like, mm-hmm. also, the friend clearly is like, oh, I don't remember the names. Because she doesn't want to get killed. Like, I'm sorry, but you would remember the names of... Yeah, the if fact of friends you made anonymous as gossip, well. I'd be like, oh those names are imprinted in my yeah brain. if you turned to me and said that one of our like someone we both knew was a paedophile i wouldn't be like i can't remember who she said yeah like do you know what i mean so i think the friends obviously staying quiet which i totally get but this oh, is yeah. a theory that sticks to me either that or the accidental like the case of mistaken identity they are the two that i'm like okay that makes sense because how was somebody so famous shot on their doorstep in the middle of the daylight in london and how is nobody been caught for it it's bigger than this. Yeah. That, yeah, I completely get that. And then I guess to not quash, I love that word. You've used it a few times today. Quash. But quash, the, the one with the mistaken identity. It's like, 
she wasn't getting followed and things. She was actually staying at a different house. So if it was mistaken identity, why were they at her house at that time when they probably would have been surveillancing her for like a while, being like, oh, she she goes to that house, which is her fiance's. You know what I mean? True. But then this so, woman, that um, the woman that she was, um, what's it called? Lisa Brinkworth. They lived very close together. Ah, right, okay. I'm sure they both lived, like, a street apart or something. So it could be that this guy's just saw her and been like, oh, oh, shit, there she is. Yeah, bang. And then being like, oops. Yeah. Fair enough. It's definitely food for thought. And that's, yeah, yeah one definitely. Of ones, though, we'll never, ever know. And, like, any conspiracy theory, it can grow hands and legs, arms and yeah, legs. Yeah, there is some it. of them that we'll you're just We'll be grabbing onto them. <laughs> yeah, there's some of them that I'm kind of like, okay. And also, like, I know there's not any direct evidence. She presented Crime Watch. That's a huge one. Yes, there's no direct evidence that it was someone from Crime Watch, but, like, she was literally exploiting, like, the UK criminals every month. Yeah. Someone yeah, could have been pissed true. off. And we're and that's the thing. Maybe other criminals know they've done it, but we're not going to know we've done it. No, we'll be the last to know. <laughs> um, just a kind of thing to finish on. Um, as part of my research, I actually watched the BBC's "The Murder of Jill Dando." This was released in two thousand nineteen. Um, and it's basically on ITV. Um, and it's it's really really good. Generally, really really good. Um, and I've watched it before, but I kind of watched it more as a research point of view and that was good there's also the ITV's Jill Dando the 20th year mystery which always came out on the 20th year anniversary that is also a really good watch as well however Netflix is actually in production on a documentary series about the life and death of Jill Dando um, that is apparently going to stream late 2023 so get ready for a you know, cosy night in dark and watching it you might not need to after how good this episode was um but yeah i think that's definitely worth giving a watch because there is so much information and you probably will see by the length of this episode a lot of our episodes are normally we try and keep them between 30 and 40 minutes samantha sometimes doesn't but um I, there was so much and i, I didn't want to do a two sorry i didn't want to do a two-parter because i hate a two-parter i listen to a lot of podcasts and then it's like come back next week and i'm like hmm? so that's why i tried to get it all in one episode for you but there is so much information that i wasn't able to fit in so i definitely recommend giving those episodes a watch the series a watch and if you've got any other conspiracies or updates on the jill dando case that i've missed we'd obviously love to hear them as always